us is we're more generous with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. But you know, there's so many more aspects of our lives that the Bible invites us to consider sharing generously with others. And so we're going to explore one of those uh, this morning. And we're going to explore the, the call that the Scripture has on our lives to share those places of sorrow and pain that touch our journey and our experiences together. And so I've invited uh, Ron Taves to come and share with us. Ron, would you join me here? Ron is a farmer turned student turned pastor turned police chaplain turned conflict mediator in the DRC turned principal turned teacher turned I'm not sure what other sods or leaves you'd like to turn over, but I know this morning the aspect that you're uh, farming and tilling is the interior world of your own heart and your story, uh, and so we're gracious that you have been authentic and will continue to do that with us here in this place this morning. So uh, let me pray for you as we begin. God, we thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us. Your mercy is new every morning. We ask for Ron as he uh, opens up your word and opens his own life to us, uh, that you would give us ears that are receptive, not only to his story, but most importantly to your story and your work. And so, God, we ask that as uh, you give us ears to hear, you would also give us eyes to see, and you would give us hearts that would be responsive. We want to be as individuals and as a faith community generous with places of pain, a generous place for people who are in pain. But God, we need your spirit to do that work in our hearts. We cannot do it on our own strength and initiative. And so we declare our trust in you. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to each one of us in this place this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you here this morning and uh, enter into this, the experience of this faith community and worship, um, to, to walk into churches where I know a few people is always uh, a privilege, uh, but equally as exciting for me is to walk into churches where I don't know many people at all. I delight in what God is up to among you, this sense that he is calling you into his family, and you're experiencing God through this family. And so I'm delighted to be here with you this morning, uh, sharing both something of, of, of my own story, but more particularly, as Brad prayed, that you would see God's story writ large uh, over the experience of my own. Um, I speak to you as one this morning who is, who is in so many ways in process. Um, I call myself a lifelong learner. Uh, the work that I do as director for our national uh, L2L ministry, Leaders to Learners, is we say continually to people, be a lifelong learner. Uh, don't stop. Let God speak to you in this moment. Uh, let God awaken you to what God is up to in this moment so that you have the ability to follow him well into the next. I seek to live that in my own story. 
And so I want to share with you, I will be transparent this morning, uh, you, you, you may note a quivering voice, uh, it's, 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 it comes on purpose, uh, not because I ask it to, but it, 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 it simply reflects the journey that uh, God has had Diane and I on, my wife Diane and I on, uh, in these last seven, just over seven years. Uh, Dustin, I don't know where you are here, you were up here at this mic. There you are. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. For, for probably more than half of these last seven, almost eight years, I haven't been able to sing. When the community sings, I borrow your voice, and I thank you. Probably worship has, has not been more impactful in my own life than in these last seven years when I haven't sung much. There's something about being called into uh, the convictions that we hold as, as followers of Jesus uh, through the voices of others, through the songs of others. That's been so powerful for me, though I haven't sung much or clapped much or raised my hands much. And so thank you to, to you and your ilk, people like you who, who lead us as faith communities into those very sacred places. I'm so grateful that you allow us to borrow uh, your voice in, in those seasons of, of our life. I'm joined by Anne-Marie uh, this morning, who uh, I didn't know who the reader would be this morning. And uh, of course, uh, she and her husband, uh, uh, we came together, I guess, in the Acts chapter of life, and I solemnized a marriage for these guys. And so here you are again, and it's... Uh, privilege to be able to participate with you uh, in this way. I've asked Anne-Marie that she would read uh, scriptures that I have selected for her, and I weave these into the story uh, as I want to share it with you here this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to begin, Anne-Marie. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, do you know how to give thanks in all situations? Do you know how to be thankful when your child is born with a disability? When you lose a job? When your spouse or your child or your parent is addicted to, to drugs or alcohol? Do you know how to be thankful? Do you know how to be thankful when you face financial ruin? When a tragic accident leaves you with life-altering injuries and unending pain? Do you know how to be thankful when your spouse leaves you for someone else? When a friend betrays you? When you lose autonomy due to age or some particular disability? Do you know how to be thankful when you are infertile? when you loathe yourself for wrong choices in your past, when you desire marriage but see no potential in sight, when you're sexually assaulted or someone you love, do you know how to be thankful? Do you know how to be thankful when you face spiritual disillusionment due to some grave circumstance in your life, when you're the victim of a violent crime, when your spouse or your child is arrested. Do you know how to be thankful 
This is our call. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do you know how to be thankful when your child is killed? On the edge of the 93 highway between Golden and Radium stands a small cross that marks the place that God received back the son that he gave to Diane and me. July 20, 19, or 2007, early afternoon, just before one, a crash violent occurs when a semi-tractor with a loaded trailer enters a curve too tight, too much speed, tips over onto the car that holds my two sons and their wives, one pregnant. At any other time, this place is peaceful. A par three golf course to the left, a hillside to the right, a tall trees overlooking a scenic valley, mountains on either side. We brought Nathan's body back to Abbotsford, to a quiet cemetery on the edge of town. This setting is peaceful too, edged by tall trees, a sloping hillside, dandelions competing with grass, eagles, hawks often circling overhead when I go there. I have returned often to these peaceful places in the last seven years. Both are now etched with tears, accustomed to lament, well familiar with my heart's unpeaceful questions. When I kneel at Nathan's grave, I am not sure exactly how to be thankful. Psalm 116, verse 3. The cords of death entangle me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Job 3, verse 25. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Lamentations 5, verse 15. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. In the months after Nathan's death, I found myself turning to the scriptures with mixed results. To be sure, certain texts and passages held great comfort, like salve on a wound or a breast for a baby, drink for a thirsty runner. Diane and I turned often to favorite scriptures that allowed us to weep ourselves to unsatisfying sleep in the arms of a somewhat safe God. Other texts became a greater challenge to read. Texts that describe with certainty and, and, and conviction the promise of long life, of, of answered prayer, of good things in the hands of a loving God. Perhaps you understand. 
Crises have a way of raising questions. Why would God let this happen? Does God care? Is God in control? How does the death or life-altering injuries of loved ones accomplish the purposes of the kingdom of God? What exactly does prayer accomplish if it does not result in safe travel and good health and renewed marriages or businesses reborn? How does one survive the, the wrenching sorrow, the seemingly endless lament that accompanies loss? In the midst of the fog of grief that descends and envelops and takes over endlessly, leaving one so, so fragile, where is God? For 15 years, I was a pastor, two churches. In the first church, a church of nearly 600, um, we had 170 or so people over the age of 70, and so funerals were, were the norm. Uh, we, we, on average, in all of my years, we had between 15 and 20 uh, annually. And so death was normal. I learned that first came the walking with people, uh, dear people in the months leading up to the death, perhaps the one who was dying, but also with the family. I discovered over time that um, the better questions having to do with where's God in the midst of this didn't often occur in the midst of this. They came in the dark months after. did not take me long to discover also that there were certainly places where I was able to point people to, with, with certainty to, to the place where God was in the midst of their stories. Scriptures that, that held such meaning to, to open these to, to people who were wrestling was a beautiful experience. But I also recall those times where I didn't have words. I was reminded of, of the experience of Jesus as he sits with the family after Lazarus dies, and he gives to them not so much words, but tears. Tears, I found, speak more eloquently than many a word. Well, if that was my experience as a pastor, now I was no longer the pastor with polished words. I was the mourner. I was the husband of a woman whose mother heart was broken. Now I was the father of a daughter-in-law who had no husband. I was the father of another daughter-in-law whose broken body bore life-altering injuries. I was the father of a son who had been both accident victim and witness. He watched his brother die before his eyes. And more was mystery. As I knelt at Nathan's grave, I often found myself coming back to a question. Tell me again, God. How does this accomplish your kingdom purpose? But the answers did not come. And I was left to conclude with Isaiah. 
in chapter 45, verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night, and I am not silent. To say that the suffering of the world has worked its way more deeply into my heart would be accurate. To say that a profound darkness settled over me would also be accurate. To say that God was absent would not be accurate. But to say that God was palpably present would likewise be inaccurate. There is a curious and intriguing phrase that comes to us in Exodus chapter 20. The setting finds Moses climbing Mount Sinai to to receive from God the Ten Commandments for the children of Israel. And the intriguing phrase is in verse 21 of Exodus 20. And it's this, Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Commenting on this verse after his own son died, the famed evangelist Leighton Ford wrote these words. To enter this darkness is to enter into the mystery of God, to venture into the darkness of the unknown, to let go of the little lights that I want desperately to hold on to, and to know God more deeply in darkness, mystery, and even near despair. In the darkness, I was left to conclude that probably in a few ways, I understood God better. But in so many ways, I understood God less. I've preached for my whole life. I've often gone back through in these years through the sermons that I preached, and I wondered, would I preach this text the same way? The thing about this this experience of loss is that it's forced me back to the Scriptures, but with a different set of questions. I understood that and continue to believe with conviction that God had a purpose in sovereignly allowing Nathan's death and the injuries of others. Even though this side of heaven, I probably won't understand it came to appreciate a truth, the truth of a line of, of Bruce Walkey, who writes that the movements of God are verified in history, not in the moment. They're verified in history, not in the moment. I came to appreciate that if, that if I was to go on by faith, it would require a waiting, a new surrender, a new level of relinquishment on my part. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Psalm 130, verse 5. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He, heard, he turned to me and heard my cry. From my wife. I learned the... Learned, watched, witnessed choice. Diane is fond of saying that hers is not a complicated faith. Mine is, she would say. Hers is not. She says, I choose to live by faith. And I so appreciate that. I also choose to live by faith. As these months have stretched into seasons and the seasons into years, we become attentive to some larger movements of God in us and around us. In the deafening silence, we find it possible to hear God, to hear the Spirit, to hear the Word. Sometimes through the songs of Dustin and others. We hear God through the body of Christ, and that's why, for me, a body like this is so important. And that's why the candor of a body like this is so powerful. Because we can't do this alone. One of the things that I've often observed is that a metaphor will give itself to me and yield insight. One that's yielded great insight to me over these years is that of a petty point. I might imagine that there's some in this room who, who love the fine needlework that goes with stitching together a, a, a petty point. It may be a, a pastoral scene, it may be Psalm 23, but it takes intricate uh, uh, hand coordination, hand-eye, and you, you've got to have the patience to stay with it. And when you're done, you frame it, and you, 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 you present it for, for all to see, and, and they admire its beauty. It's been my experience that my own life is less like the beauty of the petty point, at least the front side, and more like the reverse so that if you were to go into your house and, and turn, in fact, turn that petty point that you've worked so hard to make presentable, if you were to turn it around and hang it on the wall, you'd have a better snapshot of my life. The back of that petty point isn't nearly so neat. The threads hang unmanageable, if you will. Uh, there isn't the same sense of coherence. You see the confusion of color. You see the confusion of thread. You, you have a sense that Something must be happening somewhere, but you don't quite get it. That's been my life. As a pastor, it was my privilege on a regular basis to interview. I took journalism courses when I was in university, and, and so pretty much for 15 years, I found somebody to interview on a Sunday morning. I drew them out of themselves so that we as a faith community could enter into their story. It wasn't uncommon for me to approach someone and say, would you allow me, if I was preaching on human sexuality or, 
raising children. I would find an exemplar or who, who thought maybe they weren't necessarily that. But so, so would you allow me to interview you out of yourself so that we could, we could listen to your story? And invariably, I would hear people say, ah, my life's not together yet. But if you ask me in about three weeks, I think it will be. The story will be done. And I'll be better in three weeks. And I said, you know, in three weeks we won't understand you because for most of us we're like the back of the petty point today. We don't always see the grand movements of God in our moment. We live with the tumbling confusion of color and we can't quite make sense of it. That's my life in this season, I think. In Exodus, we're told that a new Pharaoh emerges who knows not Joseph. The Hebrew people are oppressed. In Exodus 2, we're told that Moses is born into privilege, but he kills a man and ends up making an exodus of his own to Midian. In Exodus 3, we're told that Moses is minding his own sheep business. When an angel of the Lord appears to him in flames of fire from within a bush, and the odd thing about this is that the bush doesn't burn up, and so he moves in for a closer look. Eventually, God talks to Moses, tells him to take off his sandals, and then fills him on, in on the task that he has for him, to go guide the, the people out of slavery. Moses raises eight objections. This is the second one. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In life after Nathan, this passage has come to hold new meaning. When, when Moses says at the burning bush, uh, or asks rather, God, what, what's this name? Uh, he is told, according to our English Bibles, I am who I am. I've often taken this to be information about God's essence. Uh, if you're a theologian, you'd know this as an ontological statement. You, it's a big word. Uh, it's a statement of, of, of God simply declaring, this is me. I am the being one, or I am the everlasting one. It might even be a sense of God waving his, or wagging his finger at Moses and saying, come on Moses, uh, I'm going to keep up my end of the deal, but you've got to keep up your end too. I'm counting on you to do your part, so don't give me attitude. I need you to go. Don't let me down. I think differently about this text today. In verse 13, when Moses asks of God, suppose I tell the people that the God of their parents has sent me to them, and they ask me, what is his name? God says in verse 14, the one who was present is present. That one shall be there. I shall be there. Perhaps these days you're wrestling. Wrestling through a season in which Thanksgiving doesn't just roll off the tip of your tongue. Grim prognoses, loss, uh, death, reversals, rocky relationship. And God says to you, I am that I am, or I shall be there with you. God does not have a history of being an idle bystander to the sufferings of his people. 
God's word to Moses is a word of hope to us. I shall be there. Though the fragility we feel in suffering and silence erodes our confidence, God says, I shall be there. Though the shards of agony shred us, God says, I shall be there. Though we face severe challenges, God says, I shall be there. Though the emptiness of a hollow heart is overwhelming, God says, I shall be there. Though the song for the moment is lost, God says, I shall be there. And He is. God is present. Of this, our scriptures remind us. Hebrews 13, verse 5. God said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Lamentations 3.19 I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Is suffering a reversible condition? Probably in some cases. Cheating spouses can end their adulterous ways. An abscessed tooth can be removed. But not all suffering is reversible. Businesses are lost. The choices of our past often do have painful consequences long into the future. Children do not always come back to life. It is possible for us to to spend our whole lives trying to evade suffering. Yet it would seem that much of that which God intends to accomplish in the lives of his people is accomplished in our suffering. James 1, 2-4 Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9 But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay, what does he mean? Well, if we'd have been there, we'd have got it. At the time of writing, clay jars were as common as dandelions. Wealthy people, of course, had expensive jars, gold, silver, copper, encrusted with jewels, perhaps. But ordinary folk had to be content with clay. Fortunately, clay was so plentiful If you happen to drop a jar, it shattered. You simply put it on the compost heap. It returned to earth. It was fine. No big deal. If you left it out in the sun by accident too long, it wasn't a problem. A clay jar was Canadian pennies. Uh, If a guest was coming, you needed a bit of extra water. You simply went to the, the street corner and got some in a clay jar. It was no big deal. 
clay was as plentiful as a Tim Hortons bag is to us, the, the kind where you get your, your, your donut or your muffin, it, that's the clay jar. It was ubiquitous. Um, they, it was simply there to get an ordinary job done. What Paul is telling us is that we have this treasure in jars of clay, and the treasure he's referring to is the gospel. We have that treasure in us, us, this clay jar. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We live in a time when people spend a great deal of energy and money to glorify the clay jar. A 50-year-old wishes to look 25. Uh, Paul would just simply have a, a hearty belly laugh, I think. And maybe that's why he preaches this sermon. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Really, Paul is setting up this contrast. We never think of serving a sirloin steak on a styrofoam plate or the finest and rarest of wines in a styrofoam cup. Or your jewelry, you'd not put it in that Tim Hortons bag or your laptop in a superstore plastic. You simply wouldn't do that. It would make no sense to you. And Paul is setting up that contrast for us here. The most important thing about the clay jar is the treasure it holds. This reality was pressed home on me when I was diagnosed with testicular cancer in my early 40s. In the long months of recuperation that followed my surgery, and I wasn't sure I would live, I came to appreciate the fragility of life the fragility of the container. A container that is us is made of clay, susceptible to disease, to the ravages of time, the abuse of overwork. I recall well in the first year after that experience how easy it was for me to see what was treasure and what was not. How we spend so much time and energy on frivolous, the fluff. And in an instant, I was able to see through that stuff. For some, a hangnail is the edge. For me, the edge that I was living, or from the edge that I was living, I'd have welcomed the hangnail. There's something about cancer that is perspective-giving. Some things are important, eternal, and some things are not. This text teaches that there is a reason why God has placed his treasure into us, us as clay. And it's to make abundantly clear that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Terribly humbling, I confess, but equally freeing. When I get my clayness, I am better. And I have discovered that it takes courage to be weak. To allow the backside of the petty point to in fact be the one I show. Because I'm not like the front very often at all. We don't much care for weakness or vulnerability or powerlessness. Prefer to win, to be in charge, enjoy prominence. But the reality is that mortality is written all over us by design. Somewhere I've come to accept along this way that to return to a pre-2007 in life 
2007 life with Nathan is not possible. Ours is not a tragedy that is going to reverse itself in my lifetime. And I find myself coming to terms with a new normal. Time has smoothed some of the jagged edges of loss. Here and there we see Jesus afresh. And here and there places often out of the way and not where I would have expected it before. I see God. Sometimes we see Jesus for others. A few months ago, we put our arms around strangers whose son died in mysterious circumstances. Two weeks ago, I sat with someone whose baby died. This has become our qualifying experience of walking alongside others, being real, being open, allowing the back and the underbelly and the unseemly and the unsightly to be out in that place where the people of God can walk toward us, but also we toward them. In the early days, it was so important that the people of God would walk toward us. We borrowed their faith, it would seem. As we've become more aware of the hand of God at work in us, that's reversed. And so in my, I have a travel job. I work for the Canadian Conference. I'm across the country regularly. Uh, invariably, uh, two weeks or three do not go by where someone doesn't ring or text or call and say, can we get together? Invariably, they're strangers. and We walk together. It seems that Nathan's death has become our qualifying experience. And even when silence still sometimes overpowers God's voice, even there we observe that God is bringing something new into our lives. We observe that he's not putting our lives back together in such a way that we resemble our former selves. Instead, He is putting the broken shards of our lives back together in such a way that his purposes are being accomplished, which we don't always understand. In her book, A New Kind of Normal, Carol Kent says this, when suffering suffering shatters the carefully kept vase that that is our lives, God stoops in to pick up the pieces. But he doesn't put them back together as a restoration project modeled after our former lives. Instead, he sifts through the rubble and selects some of the shards as raw material for another project, a mosaic that tells the story of redemption. Isaiah 55, 88. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Dustin, why don't you join me with your team on the platform? I'm nearly done. Let me say this to you as I end. 
I started by saying that I speak to you from within the crucible. I'm not sure that the grinding is yet complete. The pain sometimes still seems more than I know how to express. Every time I hold another man in my arms whose son has died or daughter, it seems to rip off this scab that has healed in my own heart. I freely confess that I don't know how to be thankful in everything. I aspire to that. I don't find faith to have necessarily, and hear me well on this, necessarily minimized my grief. What my faith has done is reminded me is that grief doesn't get the final word. My faith reaffirms that it is the gospel which is the powerful essence in our world. Apart from that, there is no hope. And this journey is too hard. But it is that one who has sent his son for me, for us, who gives me hope. That God is taking this world to some place, to an end, for his purpose. By that conviction I live. I live by faith in the finished work of Christ. And I seek to allow the promises in his word to shape my daily living. Hebrews 13.5 God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thank you, Anne-Marie. In a room this size, with this many people, it would not surprise me at all that there are people who are wrestling in these days with hard questions. A prayer response team is uh, going to be available here now as, as Dustin and the team lead us. Again, I give you thanks for being present to one another. If you're present to one another, as the community of faith has been to Diane and I and our children, uh, you are blessed. I pray that you will have courage to let the ragged part of life be the part you're willing to show. Because it's only as you're willing to go there that the people of God can come alongside you in ways that will sustain you. And so that would be my prayer for you. Thank you.